Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. This is episode number two. Thank you so much for your support. The first podcast has been downloaded in over 20 countries and every single continent except Antarctica. Don't know what it is that we're not doing that's appealing to the penguins, but when I asked that question of colleagues recently, they said, well, maybe you should cover aspergillosis. Now, you're wondering why aspergillosis? Well, it turns out that penguins can get invasive aspergillosis. So perhaps in future podcasts, we'll cover prevention of aspergillosis in lung transplant recipients, liver transplant recipients, and perhaps even penguins. Today, we're recording from Baltimore, Maryland. Baltimore has a literary tradition, which is really a deep part of the city. An American lawyer from Frederick, Maryland, was in Baltimore on the night of September 13th to 14th in 18. 14, he observed the British bombardment of Fort McHenry, and at dawn, this lawyer was able to see the American flag still waving, and he later wrote a poem about it. He was Francis Scott Key, and the poem became the American National Anthem, The Star-Spangled Banner. You can still visit Fort McHenry, and also Edgar Allan Poe's House and Museum, which is also in Baltimore. Such great writers, such as F. Scott Fitzgerald, Zora Neale Hurston, Mencken, Frederick Douglass, John Dos Passos, all came from Baltimore or spent a significant amount of time here. More recent authors, Tennessee Coates, the recently deceased Tom Clancy, Laura Lipman, Ann Tyler, also hail or have spent a significant amount of time in Baltimore. And of course, Edgar Allan Poe has strong Baltimore connections. Baltimore's attachment to Poe was so deep that when the football team, that is American football, needed a new name, fans chose the name Baltimore Ravens. This was inspired by Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven, a tough, menacing bird for a town with grit and an appreciation for literature. So, let's dive into a case. You are carrying the pager on the transplant infectious disease service. Now, I know it's a little bit of an anachronism because people don't really carry pagers anymore, but I think you get what I'm talking about. And you get a call, and there's a patient that was at another hospital and uh, tragically died of uh, anoxic encephalopathy. He was a young man with uh, acute influenza infection and also a background of asthma, and tragically died. The family, through their generosity and grace, have allowed the patient's organs to be used to try to save other people's lives. Now, a little bit about transplantation and what it can do. There is no single therapy that is as effective as an organ transplant for treatment of end-stage organ disease. Patients with end-stage renal disease can be on hemodialysis and are on that therapy or peritoneal dialysis, but 
that is not a great long-term solution. Mortality is high, morbidity is high. There's nothing like having an organ transplant if possible. Patients with liver transplantation that are sick enough to require an organ are really not going to generally make it for a year without getting an organ, whether they have hepatocellular carcinoma or decompensated end-stage liver disease. They really need a liver transplant if there's any chance of long-term survival. So huge need for organs. Lots of people needing organs, supply limited, and the last thing that you want to do as a transplant team member is to put a halt on a potentially life-saving organ. At the same time, the risk of donor-transmitted infection is something that always needs to be taken into consideration. We don't want to hurt the patient with having them acquire an infection that we can't treat from the donated organ. And the public confidence in the whole transplant process really takes a hit when there are episodes of donor transmitted infection. So high attention is paid to try to really do the best that we can in terms of getting organs to patients because they are life-saving, yet at the same time trying to prevent an organ transmitted infection. As inspired by a question by my colleague Joanna Shaneman from UCLA, I asked this of various people. If a patient dies of a complication from respiratory virus, do you accept the organ for life-saving donation? And is there any respiratory virus that you would absolutely say no to? Several people expressed concern about taking organs from a donor with adenovirus. Cameron Wolf at Duke mentioned that they have seen donor-derived adenovirus in renal and liver and lung transplant recipients. He also cautioned against donation from people who have traveled out of China within two weeks. As he said, some respiratory viruses we just don't know enough about and might also put the OR staff at risk. Joanna Scheinman at UCLA said that they have done well with adenovirus-positive pediatric donor kidneys, donor with respiratory complications. They screened the adult recipient by PCR and then plan on giving cidofovir if detectable virus. So back to the influenza case, in a study published by Sanjay Mehta et al., Transplant Infectious Disease 2016, they asked a 10-question survey of infectious disease providers from the AST ID community of practice about their practices regarding acceptance of organs from patients with infections. With the specific issue of influenza, the majority of respondents to the survey, 91 to 94%, said they would be willing to accept hearts, kidneys, pancreases, and livers from donors with active influenza infection. The rate of acceptance of lungs was about 50%, and over 70% of respondents who would accept organs other than lungs were willing to accept them with less than five days of anti-influenza therapy in the donor. Most centers will use post-exposure prophylaxis for the recipients with a drug such as oseltamivir, whether they should give it for five days or 10 days is unclear. A recent report 
in pediatric heart transplantation from an influenza B-positive donor by Clyde Smith et al. in the Pediatric Transplantation Journal, January 2019, summarized it quite well. They stated that there is no consensus regarding the duration of antiviral therapy, specific drug choices, or the utility in using a more liberal immunosuppressive regimen in the immediate post-transplant period for solid organ transplant recipients of organs from influenza-infected donors. In general, they said the majority of successful SOTs from influenza-infected donors have followed several days of Tamiflu, also Tamivir, for both the donor and the recipient without any marked changes in post-transplant immunosuppression regimen, all without disease transmission. And those authors concluded, and in their case they were focused on a pediatric heart transplant patient, that influenza infection of an otherwise acceptable donor should not preclude transplantation. So what do you do at your center? Do you accept all organs, only some organs, all respiratory viral infections, some respiratory viral infections, and what kind of prophylaxis post-transplant, if any, do you use? Write us and let us know. So let's talk about another case. This is a 46-year-old woman with past medical history significant for diabetes mellitus, insulin-dependent, end-stage renal disease for which she underwent two kidney transplants, the most recent about five years ago, gastroparesis, neurogenic bladder with recurrent urinary tract infections, and multiple, multiple episodes of diarrhea. This most recent one has been going on for a few days and presented with nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, no fevers or chills. Sometimes her diarrhea is associated with nausea and vomiting. Sometimes it just comes on its own and it's never bloody, nor is there any mucus in it. On examination, she's not hypotensive, not tachycardic, has no fever, generally well-appearing, and on examination, there is some diffuse abdominal tenderness, but no rebound, nothing scary. Just chronic episodes of diarrhea. They come, they get better, they go. Her medications are mycophenolate in the form of Celsept, 500 milligrams twice daily. It previously was a gram twice daily, but this was reduced. Prednisone, 5 milligrams daily. Tacrolimus, 2 milligrams twice a day. And pantoprazole. She also is on medication for the gastroparesis and on insulin. Her laboratory findings are fairly unremarkable in terms of CBC, renal function, liver function tests. So how do we approach a patient like this? Well, for one, diarrhea is an incredibly common condition in transplant recipients. 
20 to even 50% of transplant recipients will have diarrhea at some point. By far, the most common causes of diarrhea in transplant patients are going to fall into medications, particularly the immunosuppressive medications, C. difficile, and other infections. Some of the medications that are most important are mycophenolate, a very common cause of diarrhea. Just taking the medication can cause upset stomach, but there's also a form of colitis that can happen with mycophenolate, and on biopsy will show apoptotic figures. Tacrolimus, cyclosporins, sirolimus, antibacterials, all those can cause diarrhea, as can proton pump inhibitors like the one that she's on. And the proton pump inhibitor is also important in that that in and of itself is a risk factor for C. difficile, which again is a very common cause of diarrhea in transplant patients. Now, this particular patient, C. difficile, has been a real problem because she has the neurogenic bladder, requires uh, multiple doses of antibiotics from time to time because of urinary tract infection. So she's kind of dancing between UTI on the one hand and C. difficile on the other hand at various times. In terms of other causes of diarrhea that are infectious, just having a urinary tract infection is a common cause of diarrhea. A presentation of UTI pyelonephritis can cause about 10% of diarrhea episodes in transplant recipients. CMV is another thing that must be considered as a cause of diarrhea. And it's important to know that the CMV viral load may sometimes be negative, yet the patient can still have CMV colitis. And for those reasons, if a patient is having ongoing diarrhea, a diagnosis is not established, even with a CMV PCR negative, that diagnosis should be considered and a colonoscopy with biopsy specifically looking for CMV should be done. Evaluation of this patient's stool with nucleic acid amplification testing showed presence of norovirus. Now, norovirus is an incredibly common cause of diarrhea worldwide. It's probably one of the most common causes of non-bacterial infectious diarrhea. Maybe over 90% of cases are due to norovirus. Uh, transmission typically occurs via the fecal oral route or via inhalation of aerosols from vomit or contact with environmental surfaces. The infection typically occurs in the winter, is typically acute, and historically has been called winter vomiting illness because there is a vomiting component that's quite common. That having been said, in a transplant patient, this doesn't have to be the case at all. The infection can occur year-round at any time. It can be acute or it can be chronic, and there can be diarrhea, abdominal pain, and uh, vomiting may or may not be present. Some of the features that you see is that patients may have the typical acute norovirus infection, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, but then go on to develop chronic viral shedding with prolonged and sometimes intermittent diarrhea that comes and goes, and that is exactly what happened with this lady. She would have the norovirus, 
infection, diarrhea, it would get better, then it would get worse. Sometimes she had renal insufficiency because of volume depletion with this. Uh, her immune suppression was manipulated because that is really one of the core ways to try to get the infection under control. And uh, sometimes she would get C. difficile because of the antibiotics that she was getting for her urinary tract infections. Sometimes she would get diarrhea because of the UTIs, and sometimes she would get diarrhea from the norovirus, and it was all mixed in together. And, and that is really the way that these patients often present is with multiple different problems that uh, may or may not be able to be teased apart. And um, the uh, viral shedding go on for a long time. And I'm talking about in the range of months to years. In the American Society of Transplantation Guidelines by Michael Angarone and David Snydman, published in Clinical Transplantation, March 2019, Diagnosis and Management of Diarrhea in Solid Organ Transplant Recipients. The recommendation for treatment of norovirus is rehydration, anti-motility agents, consider reduction in immunosuppressive medications, and then nitazoxanide. The guidelines point out that while nitazoxanide has a track record of demonstrating effectiveness in treating norovirus with significant reduction in time to resolution of symptoms, and I have seen multiple patients have that kind of response, the data is unclear as to its efficacy. And currently there is an ongoing phase two study led by Mike Eisen at Northwestern evaluating the safety and efficacy of nitazoxanide in the treatment of norovirus in SOT and BMT recipients. And hopefully that'll help define the role of this agent. I've seen patients respond to it. I've also seen patients not respond at all. And um, hopefully we'll get data for that. There's also some emerging glimmers, glints of data about immunoglobulin, oral human immunoglobulin for conditions such as norovirus. Several groups have reported on this in extremely small series. Diana Florescu from University of Nebraska back in 2011 published a small series of 12 patients that seem to have resolution of diarrhea and decreased stool outputs at seven days of treatment compared with controls. This was in pediatric transplantation 2011. In 2013, Tristan Degault I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it correctly, D-E-G-O-T, in the European Respiratory Journal in 2013, also published their experience with resolution of diarrhea after oral human serum immunoglobulin in a lung transplant recipient with norovirus. And most recently, Nussbaum et al., 
published an article, Orally Administered Human Immunoglobulin Therapy for Norovirus Enteritis in Solid Organ Transplant Recipients, a case series at a single academic transplant center. This is in Clinical Infectious Diseases, and it was just a few weeks ago that it was published. This was a retrospective review of nine patients who had received orally administered human immunoglobulin for norovirus. And they found that the majority of patients achieved sustained resolution of the diarrhea with this modality. And again, all of these reports have obvious limitations in terms of the data that uh, was generated and its applicability. Nonetheless, for desperate cases, patients that are just getting hammered by having norovirus again and again and again, perhaps this approach can be considered. And so putting it all together for norovirus, I would say the first step is to think about it so that you can make the diagnosis. The second step is to deal with the volume depletion if it's present and symptomatic relief with uh, anti-motility agents if needed. The third to reduce the immunosuppression to the extent feasible, particularly the mycophenolate seems to be a big offender. The fourth is nitazoxanide. Whether this actually works is not clear, which is why there's the ongoing phase two study, which uh, is 500 milligrams BID for 28 days compared to placebo. More information on that study can be found at the clinicaltrials.gov website. The official title is Phase II Multicenter Prospective Randomized Double-Blind Study to Assess the Clinical and Antiviral Efficacy and Safety of Nitazoxanide for Treatment of Norovirus in HSCT and SOT Recipients. And that study is having ongoing enrollment. That study is expected to be completed in May of 2021, and in the interest of full disclosure, I am an investigator on that study at our Johns Hopkins site. And finally, as described for desperate cases, oral immunoglobulin is potentially an option. Unclear how effective it is, but uh, it does have some suggestion that there could be efficacy there. A final note on norovirus is that just because the patient had norovirus a month ago, six months ago, and a year ago does not mean that their diarrhea right now is due to norovirus because patients can have multiple causes of diarrhea. And my personal experience has been that the patients that are getting chronic norovirus diarrhea oftentimes also have other causes of diarrhea that are ongoing, both infectious and non-infectious, including medication-induced, bacterial overgrowth, other infections, systemic infections such as urinary tract infection or pyelonephritis, C. difficile infection, CMV infection, and potentially other causes of infectious diarrhea. So the differential diagnosis both for infectious and non-infectious causes of diarrhea in these patients need to be kept broad even if they've had a history of diarrhea with one of the other etiologies. Joining us on the podcast today is Robin Avery. She is a transplant infectious disease physician and professor of medicine. 
Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Been past chair of the American Society of Transplantation, Infectious Disease Community of Practice, co-editor of the first edition of the AST Infectious Disease Guidelines, a member of the Guidelines Committee for the Infectious Disease Society of America, IDSA, on immunization in the immunocompromised host. Prior to coming to Hopkins in 2012, she was the founding head of the Transplant ID section at Cleveland Clinic, where she also founded the Cleveland Clinic Transplant ID Fellowship Program. She's personally been involved in the training and development of scores of clinicians, researchers, educators in the field of transplant infectious disease. She's an important part of the consolidation of the field from something that was far less organized two, three decades ago to the thriving sub-specialty of infectious disease that it is now. She's passionate about providing the patients what they need. Patients absolutely adore her, as do the other clinicians. In fact, in 2017, just five years after she came to Johns Hopkins, she was awarded the best consultant physician at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Now, there's a lot of good doctors at Johns Hopkins Hospital, but the other doctors, her peers, felt that in 2017, she should be commended as being the best of the best. So, Dr. Avery, how did you get interested in transplant ID? So, first of all, Dr. Shoham, I want to thank you so much. I'm very honored to be here today and delighted to be talking with you about norovirus and transplant ID. And I just want to say you're way too kind. That's you who really are an incredible transplant ID physician. And also, I commend you for um, disseminating knowledge and information of transplant ID concepts to a uh, broad audience. So I got interested, I was a, um, an infectious disease fellow at Mass General from 1989 to 93, and I had many, many wonderful mentors and colleagues there, but two of them really stand out in that regard. And one was Bob Rubin, the late Bob Rubin, who, sorry to say, passed away in 2018, but really was one of the founding fathers of Transplant ID, and as you know, the, um, the originator of concepts that we now consider paradigmatic in the field, such as the net state of immunosuppression, the th three-part um, uh, timetable of infections after transplant ID, and also the idea of the transplant uh, patient as sentinel chicken. So I learned a huge amount uh, from Bob and basically followed him around for six months to sort of apprentice myself because at that time there wasn't a formal transplant ID fellowship. Uh, and the other one at that time was Mark Pasternak, who was my laboratory mentor. Mark is a pediatric infectious disease physician and immunologist at Mass General, wonderful physician scientist, and uh, worked uh, at the time on basic cytotoxic T cell immunology. So from Mark, I learned a lot about um, immunology and the host pathogen interface. And although I did not become a laboratory scientist myself, it gave me sort of the background and the terminology and the concepts to be able to speak with immunologists, uh, transplant physicians and surgeons, immunogeneticists, et cetera, about immunologic concepts. And I also want to mention a third physician who was very influential in my development, Jay Fishman, 
who uh, I think really sort of took forward the mantle uh, 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 of developing the field in so many ways and later became the president of AST. But back in the day was also, um, you know, a personal, uh, provided me with a great deal of guidance. So I really decided I love the field because the patients are so fragile, so vulnerable, and yet you can make a huge difference to them by attending to the details, by understanding the trajectory of their recurrent events and infections, and by understanding a little bit more about their particular immunologic backgrounds. Uh, and I also think that they are amazing people because they are survivors of difficult medical courses that I can't even begin to um, you know, understand on a personal level, and yet they're resilient, they're grateful, they're appreciative, and by and large, they're just absolutely wonderful people to deal with, as you know, because you do this every day, Shmuel. So that was my background. So Dr. Avery, what changes have you seen in the field in the past two to three decades? So that's a great question. I think as a whole, we've become much more um, less reactive and more proactive. We've learned a lot more about things like viral load monitoring, prophylaxis, risk stratification, figuring out in advance before a devastating event occurs, if we possibly can, to predict who might uh, uh, develop that and how to prevent it. I think there's still a lot more work to be done in that regard. But um, it's great to see the evolution as well of uh, various therapies over time newer drugs for CMV, newer antibiotics, newer antifungals. Uh, I can remember the day when gancyclovir was called something like BWV959U, and we really didn't have anything for CMV before that. So it's wonderful to be able to treat our patients with medications that actually work. But we also know that a lot of the current antimicrobials have their uh, drawbacks or limitations, and so we're looking forward to sort of even better um, uh, uh, both therapies and interventions and, and uh, strategies in the future, one of which, I'm sure this is a topic for another day, but one that you and Willa Cochran, transplant nurse practitioner, have orchestrated for CMV monitoring and adherence to protocols to protect patients from high viral load CMV. So that kind of thing is really, I think, what we need more of in the field. And the addition of the QI and the uh, safety aspects which you're building in, that's really important too. So earlier in the podcast, we described a scenario where a prospective donor dies of complication of a respiratory viral infection. Can you describe your approach as to how you think about such donors and whether there's infections or potential organs that raise flags for you? Yeah, Shmuel, that's a great question. I think you've had already comments from people um, in DTAC Disease Transmission Advisory Committee, who've done such a important job in sort of tracking donor-derived transmissions in solid organ transplants, and so they definitely know more about that than I do. But I think uh, on the clinical service, our general rule of thumb is to think about whether or not we have a drug that can mitigate the consequences to the recipient. So we want to think about the level of risk of transmission. We want to think about how much does the recipient need this transplant at this time, and then finally, what um, can we treat them with? If it's a virus like lymphocytic choriominogitis virus, for example, that we don't have an antiviral for and that those transmissions are generally fatal, of course, that's a different category. Influenza, provided that it's a year that we don't have a lot of resistance, we could treat the recipient. And in fact, that's what I would do, except that I would not want that 
for a lung transplant um, recipient. I think the other organs we'd probably um, be able to treat the recipient. And then I think also this, there's always the um, question of how to handle the informed consent, which is typically done by the transplant surgeons, but these questions are, I think, probably for another day about how much about cultures and infection information you want to put into the informed consent discussion. Now, another topic that you know a lot about, well, you know a lot about a lot of topics, but what I'm talking about is norovirus. How did you get interested in that? Thanks for mentioning that, Shmuel, because one of my goals before I retire is to have norovirus at the front of everyone's minds when they see a transplant recipient with chronic relapsing diarrhea, which is so un undiagnosed. So it dates back to 2013, which was shortly after the G2.4 strain kind of swept through the U.S. and now has become one of our most common foodborne and community GI infections. Um, I remember it was June or so of 2013. I think I was on call a weekend, and suddenly several patients had positive norovirus tests. And before that, it actually was a send-out test for us, so we're not always getting it back right away. But this made us quite concerned that perhaps this was happening more than we realized. And then uh, it then became a rapidly orderable test. And looking at who these patients were, the ones that seem to get most ill the longest, with the longest duration of symptoms, the weight loss, the wasting, and so forth, they were often the most immunosuppressed patients. Some of them were among our incompatible kidney transplant recipients who'd had plasmapheresis, rituximab, they were hypogammaglobulinemic, et cetera. Um, and a lot of the time, the symptoms were relapsing and sometimes remitting spontaneously, so that very often this had gone undiagnosed because a, a typical story would be a patient would have some diarrhea, would come in, get hydrated a couple days, their mycophenolate would get held briefly, then they'd feel better, they'd go home, and then the whole cycle would start again. And probably what was happening in retrospect when we look back at some of those admissions and later found that every single stool that we got later on was positive for norovirus NAT, that these patients probably had had this for months to years, but was again mitigated by the natural relapsing course of this disease as well as immunosuppression modulation that happens along the course of this because mycophenolate also causes GI symptoms. So whenever a transplant clinician, for example, decreases or holds mycophenolate, patients are going to get temporarily better, partly because of direct MMF toxicity to the gut and also because that gives them temporarily at least a chance for their immune system to gain the upper hand vis-a-vis uh, -vis the norovirus. Um, Bonnie Lonzi, who at that time was one of our transplant surgeons here, actually looked up, I remember that day, to see what treatments we had. At that point, I didn't know if we had any treatments for norovirus, and she found a couple of case reports in a small randomized trial of nidazoxanide, which is currently now widely used for these patients with chronic norovirus infection. Um, and Mike Eisen is spearheading a um, multi-center NIH-funded trial called NNITS the nidazoxanide for norovirus in transplant study, which is enrolling transplant patients with norovirus infection and randomizing them to nidazoxanide versus placebo. So hopefully we'll have a real sort of rigorous scientific answer about this, but I would say that anecdotally, in our hands and that of others, I would say probably at least three quarters of patients seem to symptomatically improve with nidazoxanide courses of 14 days, sometimes longer. They don't necessarily resolve, 
but their symptoms either get a lot better or they sometimes um, improve to the point where we then think that probably the sort of healing of the gut takes a little bit longer. But then there can be relapses uh, over time. Some do, some don't. So we don't truly know the true benefit of nitazoxanide or the optimal duration. And very often it's also done in conjunction with other interventions like holding or decreasing mycophenolate, which I think definitely does help. There are a couple other phenomena to sort of make people aware of. One is that in the history, you'll often find that these patients come in complaining of diarrhea that starts in the early morning hours, like 2 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., and that really makes it impossible for them to sleep. And also they have fecal urgency a lot, so often they get depressed because they've limited their life activities. They feel like they can't go on a drive for an hour and a half because they're going to have to find a bathroom. And a significant number of them in our case series and others had lost 10% or more of body weight or had acute kidney injury and other consequences. So I think one of the issues is getting the message out to gastroenterologists in particular, internists, folks that see these patients maybe away from transplant centers or even our colleagues at transplant centers who tend to not think of it because they think of norovirus as an acute, you know, two-day Thing that's over. But in fact, a patient actually said to me once, my doctor told me this couldn't be a virus because it's been going on for so long. Many of them have had multiple sets of stool tests other than norovirus, colonoscopies, endoscopies, um, trials of gluten-free or lactose elimination, et cetera, et cetera, and then finally get diagnosed and in retrospect, that's what was going on for 18 to 24 months. So I think Making people aware of it is probably the most important thing. I think the optimal management probably has yet to be defined. It almost certainly involves reduction of immunosuppression if it's safe to do so. It may involve nitazoxanide or other drugs that are in development, um, but I think the randomized trial will help us know that. Now, we've seen some patients that developed intestinal pneumatosis in the context of norovirus infection. Have you seen any catastrophes with norovirus infection, or is it more the ongoing body blows which weaken the patient and then can put them over the edge, causing significant damage, in addition to the ongoing nuisance? Great question, Shmuel. I think I can recall two patients I took care of that presented with pneumatosis intestinalis, and one of them ended up with, I think, about an eight-week hospitalization, but didn't actually have a formal perforation. Uh, we've also seen patients present with appendicitis diverticulitis and other sort of acute abdominal processes along with the norovirus, it's always very hard to tell what's causing what. In other words, was norovirus predisposing them to this or was norovirus present chronically and then they just happened to develop appendicitis, diverticulitis, or what have you. We don't really know, but I think there's probably some synergy at the level of what's going on in the gut there. The other thing that seems to be interesting, and I'm not sure that this is borne out by others' observations, but it seems that a number of these patients, even after they clear their norovirus, they then may come in for one more diarrheal admission and have a scope and a biopsy that looks like MMF toxicity in the gut. So I really wonder if norovirus sensitizes people to MMF toxicity. And then if you eliminate the MMF, then they seem to be fine. Now there's been some reports in the literature about use of ingested immunoglobulin. And I recall that you have some experience with that. Yes, thank you. So you're referring to enteral immunoglobulin given either orally or via a nasoduodenal tube. And so um, we look to um, Diana Florescu at University of Nebraska and other colleagues who have published case series on this. 
This came up for a couple of reasons. One is, as I mentioned, some of our first and most ill patients back in 2013 were hypogammaglobulinemic, so we were giving them IVIG replacement for that, and we noticed that some of them empirically seemed to improve with that. Uh, but then when we sent our case series in for a publication, some of the reviewers rightfully asked, well, why should that make a difference since the norovirus is in the gut? Uh, although it does seem that probably systemic humoral control has something to do with it, but it does sort of intuitively make more sense that the action is in within the lumen of the gut. So what Florescu and others had done was to show that given um, a, a, a two-day or longer course of, say, every six-hour immunoglobulin administered enterally, that a number of patients with this refractory norovirus syndrome were actually able to improve. Um, and so we ended up actually trying this with now I think four patients total. The first three were people who really were pretty desperately ill with it that just had not resolved with any other interventions, nidazoxanide, stopping MMF, IVIG, et cetera. And all three of them actually had responses. The fourth one is one that you know who was not as severely ill and then on his first dose had a febrile reaction. So I think that brought up a very interesting discussion about the risks and benefits of a therapy that's not supported yet by randomized trials. But there seems to be accumulating evidence in some case series uh, that there is um, a potential benefit for people who cannot clear their norovirus any other way, and hopefully there'll be more drug development in the future that'll help us out with this. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Avery. This has been very helpful, learning about the history of the development of transplant infectious disease listening to your approach as to how to evaluate a prospective donor with a respiratory viral infection, and your insights into the history, evaluation, and management in norovirus. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for Episode 2 of the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. So great to have you, to have your support, and to pass along some of the lessons that we've learned in taking care of patients with transplantation and infection. So until next time, bye-bye.